Hello, everyone. I'm Paul Steinmetz, and this is WCSU 411, the podcast that gives you an inside look at Western Connecticut State University. We have lots of great content today, an interview with Dr. Shane Murphy, the chair of the psychology department, who talks about the new master's degree in addiction studies. We will also hear from Coach Joe Loth, whose football team had an excellent win to start the season. Then librarian Julie Hunter talks about a new program called The Human Book coming up at the Haas Library. So join us now as we begin with Dr. Murphy and hear how graduate students are learning to treat addiction. So Dr. Murphy, tell us about the Masters in Addiction Studies that just started this semester. That's right, it's very exciting. We've been uh, planning it for five or six years, so it's mm -hmm. always nice to see something that you plan and imagine and, and visualize as a dream. Uh, come to fruition. Uh, we've admitted uh, 14 students, 11 full-time, three part-time. Hmm. Um, they take uh, four courses a semester in the full-time track and uh, that way they can come in in September and graduate with the Masters in Addiction Studies at the end of the next summer. So it's basically a one-year program. Hmm, that's great. It's Yeah, it's really it's exciting for the students and uh, uh, we've just gotten a big grant from uh, HRSA, so we're really off and running to a good start. That's good. What's the grant going to do? So it's uh, called an Opioid Workforce Expansion Grant, and we heard about it uh, through our Director of Grant Programs, uh, Gabrielle Jeswicki, um, back in uh, April, and it uh, is to encourage professionals to work in interdisciplinary settings in the opioid uh, treatment field, and uh, we put in for that and, and you know, it's a long shot, but because um, people from every state and inst institutions all over the country are, are applying for it. But uh, we thought we might have a little chance because uh, they did uh, especially fund new programs that are only in their first three years of training um, students. And, of course, <laughs> we, haven't, we haven't graduated anyone yet, so right. we're certainly in that first three years. And, uh, and sure enough, we, uh, we got a grant, so that's for the next three years we can fund uh, the internships of every student that comes into the program fully, which is uh, $10,000 uh, a year for a six-month uh, internship, mm -hmm. which is fantastic for our students. The internships are important partly because students need to get a few hundred hours of actual out-of-the-classroom training before they can be licensed. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, so the Master's in Addiction Studies is built around in Connecticut the LADC, the Licensed Alcohol and Drug Counselor. Um, we've actually been preparing students for over 20 years here. Nick Gallucci, uh, who's also uh, on the faculty of the master's program, started an undergraduate track, uh, 16 credits, uh, back in the 1990s to prepare students to become a CADC, which is a Certified Alcohol and Drug Counselor. But you don't need a master's for that. Uh, and so that was one of our main motivations, actually, in, in developing the master's, was to prepare students at a higher level uh, for more rigorous uh, training and more independence in their practice. And the license, uh, as you say, the LADC, um, it requires 300 supervised mm. hours of experience. So the internship uh, gets them partway there. And then it also requires, um, I think, 3,000 hours of work experience. So um, the masters, however, counts for a whole year of that. So they'd probably have to work about two years um, in the field. Uh, and then they would be able to apply for their LADC. But all our students will be fully prepared 
uh, to get that LADC, uh, especially academically and in terms of case study materials and so on. Hmm, that's great. So the um, you started planning, I guess, five years ago, as it sounds like, a to build on the undergraduate program. And there's certainly a need from what I've read as a uh, just reading the news news that uh, this addiction problem is just seems to be getting worse and worse. It's not being addressed or it, it, the, the things that are addressing it aren't uh, slowing it down. It anyway. snowballs, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, as we've found out with the uh, opioid crisis in particular, uh, unfortunately, the medical community played a large role in unwittingly getting that ball rolling and uh, becoming a snowball. And uh, so a lot of institutions, agencies, community groups now are really getting together to try and fight this. Um, our students will be prepared for dealing with any substance use disorder. Alcoholism is still the biggest mm-hmm. problem, um, but uh, opioids are obviously a huge concern because of the lethality. Uh, we have drugs like fentanyl now that are coming into the country, and there's a variety of types of fentanyl and carfentanyl. And the, the really scary thing about it for us in the treatment field is that very small amounts can have very potent and powerful effects. Uh, and so, as always in dealing with substances and uh, and drugs, there's always something unfortunately new coming down the uh, turnpike. Mm. Fentanyl is actually a, you can be a, a prescribed drug, right? Isn't that something that doctors can prescribe to? Or is that just an illegal uh, well, all, concoction? All of the opioids um, originated as as painkillers mm. and uh, that's really part of the problem is a lot of people um, got addicted to uh, prescription painkillers and then when those prescriptions ran out or they were no longer needed for treatment but they were still filling that addicted need the urge the craving people turned to things like uh, heroin mm. and uh, and fentanyl now is is really uh, a drug of choice for a lot of people. And it comes in here on the East Coast in, uh, in large quantities, unfortunately. And it kill, can kill you pretty quickly, too. It's ama- like a tiniest little drop, like basically the top of a ballpoint pen, hmm. uh, yes, would be enough to be a fatal overdose. I mean, if you and I took it, you know, that, that would not be good because mm-hmm. <laughs> if, you don't have, if you don't have any resistance whatsoever built up in your body, then it's extremely dangerous. Will the patients who your students will be treating eventually, are they uh, people who are addicted and trying to, and finally have have recognized it, or they, who are these people who are coming in to be treated? So our graduates will be able to go out and play uh, a role as therapists um, in uh, treatment uh, facilities, uh, inpatient uh, detox units, outpatient programs, community mental health centers, hospitals, uh, and that's the thing, you name it, there, there is a need for um, addiction specialists in all areas, schools, colleges. Mm. I mean, we have Choices program here that Sharon Gark has uh, run uh, and done a marvelous job with for many years. And uh, so uh, to answer your, your question, yes, <laughs> all of the above. I mean, you get, you get uh, patients that uh, are just beginning the journey and you get patients, unfortunately, with substance use disorders that have tried and relapsed and tried and relapsed again, you know, perhaps dozens of times. And, uh, you know, sometimes who knows what it is that could be the de- turning point 
in that road to recovery. But uh, certainly that's something that our uh, graduates will be really uh, well prepared and exposed to is, is that variety of clients that they may end up seeing and, and will certainly be working with. So are there some people who can, who've had an operation or a back operation and they uh, are, got unintentionally hooked on opioids, can they get off fairly easily with some talk therapy and some mm, concentrating on it? I think the treatment of substance use disorder is never easy. Hmm. Um, There's always challenges. Uh, I was at a conference at uh, Quinnipiac University um, last year and they brought in speakers from all over the state and all over the country. And uh, some of the stories the first responders and police um, uh, told about uh, people that they had encountered here in Connecticut were sort of heartbreaking stories, just like you said, where they might have been a young, um, you know, I remember one was a high school basketball player, hurt a back, was prescribed painkillers, you know, gradually got hooked on those and then moved from there to heroin. And, you know, she was like, her life felt like it was a disaster and uh, and she just felt not normal. But it's such a common story, unfortunately. It is a normal story. Mm-hmm. And uh, um, talk therapy, also the approach nowadays that's common in the field, we call it harm reduction therapy, where we, where we try and really um, help the patient recover and not do any more harm to themselves, mm. uh, especially physically, but also emotionally and spiritually. And uh, sometimes with the opioids, um, you know, there's medication-assistant treatment that's available mm. so that they can take um, medications that um, flatten out those highs, um, stop the uh, dangerous um, peaks and then the, the sharp withdrawals and crashes that you get. So these are encouraging uh, steps on the way to full treatment um, plans. Is it the the drops, the uh, coming down from the high that's dangerous or that convinces people they or drives people to get high again? Or is it a... Um, something in your brain that says, hey, that was the best thing I uh, can get and I need to do it again? I mean, it's a good question. I I don't think there's any easy answer to that, Paul, because um, addiction is a syndrome that involves every aspect of our lives. Um, It really, uh, it's behavioral. You know, people get into habits of doing things and perhaps putting themselves in harm's way, going places that uh, where they know that, uh, you know, the drugs are available. Uh, it's emotional, um, you know, it be- becomes a very strong emotional need. It's cognitive, you know, we think about it. Uh, individuals that um, have substance use disorder have cravings for that substance. Um, there is that, you know, dependence where the more you take, the less effect it has, and then you need stronger doses to get the effect that you had before. There's the withdrawal, which can be very dangerous. Uh, alcohol withdrawal can mm. be, people don't realize this, but alcohol withdrawal can be extremely dangerous. People think of opioid withdrawal as the big medical risk, but there's very few substances that are totally safe safe to withdraw from once you've developed a tolerance for them. Mm-hmm. Is there a gender difference too, or women treated differently than men as, as far as the therapy goes? I think every individual is treated differently. Mm. Um, certainly you want to look at, at uh, gender issues, you want to look at cultural issues, um, social issues, you know, whether the person's uh, at work, employed, not, um, and age yeah, is a big thing too. And uh, 
it's interesting, you know, in, in the field, one of the, 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 the sort of shock troops of uh, substance use disorder uh, interventions are often people who have been in recovery themselves. And uh, while that's certainly an advantage to, to sort of know what it's like, it can also be a disadvantage at mm. times because you may think that your road to recovery is what will work for others. And uh, as I said, every individual is different. So every road to recovery is different. And so uh, one of the things that we work with with our graduates in the MS is um, understanding that, that there's a lot of different paths. And if the individual in the program themselves are in recovery, and it's an attractive field, you know, because folks who've sort of come out on the other end and have been able to um, remain free of substances for you know, five years, 10 years, 20 years, um, often want to give back and help others. It's, it's really an, a, an attractive thing. But uh, there is that um, double-edged sword of, of being in recovery that you have to realize that everyone's road uh, is different. Do you think doctors, physicians now are understand better what they do when they prescribe opioids? Because they're still being prescribed, right? If you have a horrible pain, they that's one of the options. Yes, yeah. I was with a, a friend at dinner last night, and she's going to get surgery for uh, scoliosis. And the doctor was saying, well, well, we'll keep you on opioids for about six months. And she was really scared about mm. that because she was like, well, what's going to happen to me at the end of that time? You know, will I, will I be addicted? You know, it's the sort of thing that people fear. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, I think the medical community is more aware. Um, there's certainly been a lot of steps taken by everyone in the field to, to increase that awareness. Um, but this is the United States of America. We're a quick fix society. We want that fast acting solution to our problems. It's, it's been a characteristic of our country for, for quite a while now. And maybe it's a, it's a characteristic of us as human beings. You know, mm-hmm. It's a tendency to sometimes uh, not want to take the, the slower and more painful way. And there are, there are, when we're talking about pain, There are certainly lots of really good strategies for pain management, Um, cognitive behavioral, um, lifestyle management, um, and these can really make a huge difference to people, but it does require time and effort. Uh, It's not as easy as just taking a a little pill. Mm -hmm. Acupuncture is something that people explore. Yeah. I mean, that, that, again, from a different tradition than our Western tradition, Mm -hmm. is something that's been used for, you know, over a thousand years. So... And there are a lot of different ways to get there. Pain is a, just in and of itself is a fascinating phenomenon because according to the most current theories we have, like the gate control theory, uh, pain is something that really doesn't happen in our body, although we feel it in our body, but it's happening in our brain, of course, because that's where all the uh, perception goes on. And because it happens in the brain, the brain does have abilities to shut that gate down and close off the pain, but we have to learn to tap into those abilities. That's fascinating. It is. I can see how the whole um, field is would be really interesting, all the different things to consider and uh, to try to uh, help people um, get through their addiction, stop their addiction. Yeah, our students are telling us that uh, they feel like they're drinking from a fire hydrant at the moment because <laughs> yeah. there's so much information to mm-hmm. take in. But it, it is very exciting and challenging and uh, interesting. It's uh, a field that... Um, I mean, it's interesting. Substance use disorders are obviously a huge challenge. But one of the things that, for example, I'm teaching a course this semester 
on co-occurring disorders, mm. which our graduates must be prepared to deal with because along with substance use disorders, very often other mental health issues can uh, occur. And so things like depression, anxiety, post-traumatic stress, um, these are all problems uh, that are, are very common in the field and our graduates have to be ready to be able to spot it, um, do some early intervention, maybe refer to somebody uh, who has expertise in an area like that. It, I've read about uh, New Hampshire and Maine, which apparently have large opioid problems, and a lot of the people suffering there have been out of work for a long time, so they're, they've given up hope. And so the, uh, they get access to heroin or something, and they become addicts that way, which has nothing to do with physical pain or they're just uh, not the, the, the effects of poverty are uh, leading them to that. Well, as I said earlier, it's a, it's a holistic way that you have to look at addiction because maybe it's not physical pain, but it could be emotional pain, mm-hmm. spiritual pain. I mean, that sense of hopelessness is a very dangerous thing. Um, not only can it lead to depression, but it can it lead to attempts to, you know, what we call in the field self-medicate, you know, try and use substances to control your own emotional experience, which can sometimes be very dangerous and, and uh, unhealthy. Has that has the move from inner cities to rural areas changed the way the, um, the symptoms are treated? No, I don't think it's it's changed the way the symptoms are treated. I think it's been part of a general um, changing societal view of the problem, where where people are realizing um, exactly as you said, you just can't localize this and say, oh, it's a problem in this particular area, and it's not so much a risk in the rest of our lives. Uh, substance use disorders are a risk in all segments of the population across all socio demographic groups. Um, and I think, thankfully, society has realized that now. And uh, really, they're putting some really serious resources, as we see with this grant, you know, which is about a million dollars for uh, Western Connecticut State University, which, again, it's a wonderful thing to be able to uh, fund our students and uh, attract you know, more students into this really urgently needed field. Do you... How much time do you spend talking to students about taking care of themselves? Because some of the stories, as you said, are horrifying and just must be feel like you're getting hit in the head with a hammer all day long yes. sometimes. And, uh, you know, our faculty, our, our main clinical faculty, faculty is myself, uh, Professor Nick Gallucci, who I mentioned, and uh, Professor Lindsay Oberleitner, who we, uh, we sort of stole away <laughs> from <laughs> Yale University, mm-hmm. where she's been running a, a forensic diversion program for the last seven years. Uh, she's amazing and has so much experience in the field. And uh, then we have a, a variety of part-time faculty that um, help in the program too. Um, most, if, if not all, have LADCs themselves, so they, they know exactly um, what they're talking about and they've experienced these issues. But something that we've all emphasized among ourselves is caring for the students, making sure that the students feel very supported. And then, as you say, self-care. In fact, we developed a course, students are taking it right now this first semester on professional ethics and self-care. And it's exactly about that. It's about making sure that ethically, you know, you understand the challenges that you face. You're well prepared to make the best decisions, but that you also take care of yourself because uh, I don't know if you know, but the word burnout uh, was originally invented 
to describe helping professionals in the substance use field. <laughs> no, I didn't know yeah. that. The, uh, the gentleman who coined the term back in uh, the 1970s did it after observing people working in uh, a drug clinic in Manhattan hmm. and uh, realizing that these you know young, um, motivated, um, enthusiastic people would come and then after a year they, they'd burn out mm-hmm. and they'd leave because they just kept seeing the same faces coming back. Uh, and thankfully nowadays we have you know intervention approaches that really can help us uh, avoid that revolving door syndrome. But it's still, it's a very challenging field. And so the word burnout is still very applicable in this, uh, in this treatment area. Mm. It sounds like a great program, though. You're covering everything. You're uh, really uh, great for society, but good for these students, too, who we, are... Yeah, we had a lot of input. Um, as I said, it's been five years. We, we didn't want to just jump in and do something that, A, wasn't really needed. Mm. And everyone kept telling us, you needed to start this program last year. <laughs> it's yeah. like it's, it's so badly needed. Uh, and B, we wanted it um, to be really current and uh, cutting edge, state of the art. And so we got a lot of input from people that are already in the field. And we kept you know, asking the same questions like, what do you need? Um, you know, for people that are working in this field, what is going to help them be really effective? And so everything we've designed into the, into the program is uh, meant to be able to prepare students in that way. And I read on the website that you don't necessarily need to be a psychology major with your BA or BS, uh, you taking from looking at different fields too. That's right. I mean, um, already in this first year of our uh, 14 students, uh, two of them are from JLA hmm. because there, there's that you know uh, overlap between hmm. um, working in the legal field and, and with law and um, uh, you know, enforcement agencies where they run into these substance use disorders all the time. Um, we have a student uh, that has more of a sociology background. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if we, well, in fact, we have a, a student who already has a nursing degree hmm. in the program. Okay. So, um, you know, we'll, we'll get students, I think, from a variety of backgrounds into this MS and addiction studies because the LADC is a, a sort of a unique license and uh, it's a good thing that. Uh, that Connecticut has it, and uh, we're going to, uh, as I say, prepare our students for that, uh, to be able to uh, fulfill the requirements for that um, to the best of their ability. Mm-hmm. And will the next cohort uh, classes start in next September, or will you have a new cohort in January? So we're actually discussing that right now, Paul. Um we certainly will start a new cohort in September, mm-hmm. uh, but we may allow rolling uh, admissions so that we could take in students in um, that would begin in the spring session as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll decide that very soon. And how would people, if they're interested in applying and finding out more about it, what do they do? So they could contact me at Western Connecticut uh, State University. So Shane Murphy, the email is murphys at wcsu.edu. Or just go to our website. We have a lot of information. Uh, we have fabulous training partners for the uh, internships. We're working with the uh, intensive outpatient program at Danbury Hospital. We're working with the inpatient detox unit at uh, MCCA, who are one of the biggest uh, providers in this field in the in the state of Connecticut. Working with uh, Mountainside uh, up in uh, Sharon, uh, Connecticut, uh, APT Foundation in New Haven, uh, mental community mental health centers around. Uh, Danbury, Waterbury, uh, Hartford, uh, Choices right here on campus. Um, We've been really very fortunate that uh, so many agencies and institutions want to work with us to give our students that 
uh, critical supervised experience that they need. And I'm sure they would like, they want these students who are well-trained and learning and excited about it too. It sounds like there's a big demand. It's a win-win, mm-hmm. uh, absolutely, for us. And uh, with this grant too, we'll be able to give back to the training agencies by hosting workshops and seminars here on campus that we'll invite uh, staff to. And they'll be able to learn some of the latest uh, techniques, some of the research and so on. Uh, should be really uh, exciting and invigorating time here on mm-hmm. campus over the next few years. Hmm. That's very exciting. Thanks for coming in to talk to us, Dr. Murphy, about the Master's in Addiction Studies, and we're looking forward to hearing more about it. Thank you very much, Paul. Bringing you even more from the inner workings of WestCon, Julie Hunter, a librarian at Haas Library, talks to us about the human book, which everyone must attend. Julie, when I first heard about the human book, it sounded kind of like a one of those zombie tv shows Mm -hmm. (laughs) so it's not that right it's uh, it's not okay (laughs) although that might be interesting (laughs) maybe next semester we could do fear the human book sure Mm -hmm. um no it's 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 certainly not um although that's a very descriptive way to kind of imagine it um and i guess we are doing it in october so it kind of plays in there (laughs) but no, we have uh, we have uh, people uh, on campus and in the Danbury community who have volunteered to uh, tell stories or um, talk about a particular topic that's very relevant in their lives, and they want to share this story. So it might be something that allows another person to grow or develop their understanding of the topic or um, broaden their uh, understanding of an adversity or a challenge that other people might experience, but that you know, the reader might not have experienced in their personal life. And it's something that you might get a book out of the library or at the bookstore about, right? You could, yeah. So we're actually, um, we have have people who have signed up to be books and we have their topics and we're curating library resources but also community resources that go along with those Mm. books. Mm -hmm. That's good. And what's the date of the thing? October 1st. Mm in the Haas library from 1 to 5 p.m. And you can come at any time. It's not that it's not a it's not a lot of people think that it's a speaker series and so we have um, people speaking to an audience and that's not that's not actually not how it's playing out. So you could come at any time that works for you and uh, sit for 20 minutes with a book. Uh, you don't have to stay for the whole time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you'll have it sounds like 10 or 15 people who have signed up to be books yes we have about 14 now Hmm. um we're hoping for a couple of more so it should be um, a pretty robust collection actually i think Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and when you go to uh if i am a visitor there Mm -hmm. i'll go check out a book right and sit down with the person yeah so you have the opportunity to see the titles of the books and the descriptions of the books uh which is the the topics that the people are their individual stories that they're talking about. And you can choose who you'd like to sit with and who you'd like to learn more from. And it's not like a thing where you can some, pick out a book and read the first page and say, no, I don't want that and put it back. Right? you got to sit there the whole time and listen to them. Actually, you could. You know, if it, if it just wasn't working out for you and you in, in, or if the conversation kind of expired early, mm. you could absolutely check the book in early and check out a different book. Mm-hmm. The problem with this is that these books have feelings, right? You don't. It's true. (laughs) You have to be nice about it. Yeah, (laughs) you can't just be like, "I'm out of here," you know. uh, You know, politely. You know, 
I think conversation has a natural way of ending anyways. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, you know, short of just being absolutely miserable, you know, and there's a, there's generally an easy way to just say, thank you very much for your time. I really enjoyed listening. And, and then you can say goodbye. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Will you have extra people there to fill in for some of the books who aren't getting uh, readers? That's a really good question. Um, we're not, I mean, there's there's no requirement. We're, we're not forcing anybody to read. Um, ideally, you know, everybody would have, would sit with some, with a reader, uh, you know, at least once or twice mm -hmm. during the event. But uh, this is really an opportunity to explore multiple topics. And what I've found, I've gone to a couple of these you start with one topic that's really interesting uh, and you find that maybe there's a wait line. Maybe you got in and you were able to see that person, maybe not. So in either of those situations, uh, if you're waiting for another book, you can check out another book that you might not think as is as interesting, but you might find that the conversation evolves in a way that you weren't expecting and you still get to learn from, from that. Um, well, who's uh, the people who show up as readers? Are they just interested in um, specific topics usually, or they just want to be engaged and see what happens? I think it's a little bit of both. From what I'm hearing about people who are interested in the program, it's going it's it's going to people be people who are interested in a very specific topic. They're going to come specifically to sit with one particular book, um, and then there's people that are just interested in general about the whole event and then the opportunity to meet a variety of new people and hear about a variety of new topics. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It wasn't invented here. Mm -mm. Uh, you didn't invent it. I did not. Thing. No, no, no. It was invented in 2000 uh, by a gentleman named Ronnie Abergel in Denmark, mm. and it's kind of evolved and bloomed uh, since since then, so there's a lot of they, there's a lot of human libraries in Europe, and um, now we're seeing them in the U.S. And I think even they're starting to expo like expand into uh, Asia and Africa, and hmm. other continents. Yeah. And you have quite a range of topics. We do this one. We do. Um, I did bring a list because I was I would definitely forget all of them. Um, but we, we have a, an atheist, we have, uh, an immigrant, we have a farmer. So not just, you know, somebody having a garden in their backyard. This is like creating produce to sell at markets, mm -hmm. um, diversity, conflict resolution. We have a gentleman who's speaking about Jewish life in the USSR after World War II. Mm. We have a mother, we have a dancer, a local entrepreneur, a union advocate, uh, a writer, and an FBI agent. <laughs> so <interesting>. far. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the writer will talk about being a writer, answer yeah. questions. Yeah. So um, his story, he, he's, he's interested in explaining how uh, writing has been an outlet for him and how his career has evolved around writing. Um, and so, uh, yeah, he's just kind of going to talk about a little bit of all of that. Mm -hmm. What's mm -hmm. the mother going to talk about? So she has a really interesting story. She um, it, um, She's an adoptive parent, and so she's going to speak about what it looks like to be a mother. Uh, so we have these assumptions about what a mother looks like um, and what they, what they have to go through to be a mother, and so she's going to speak to her experiences being um, an adoptive parent. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And... These are not people who have written books themselves, right? No. They're just talking about their own experiences. Exactly, yeah. yeah. It's, so really the whole concept is to provide an outlet for people to talk about their personal experience 
and do it in a safe and welcoming environment so that somebody who doesn't have that experience can learn about it, right? Mm -hmm. So we have this, you know, the, the way that our society functions now, you have all of these distance connections, you have social media, you hear about things in the news, but we don't really personally experience all of these things. And it's very easy to develop assumptions about a variety of things that you're not you're not personally experiencing, right? So this provides the opportunity to speak to somebody who has experienced something unique in their lives and you get to learn about how they how they went through that and what did what was their experience and how did they handle it and move past it or adopt it into their life in a positive way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And reading is an intimate kind of uh, experience and this is a will also be intimate, it sounds like, in a different kind of way, right? Yeah, yeah. So it's one-on-one conversations, Mm -hmm. uh, which can be a little intimidating at first. But the idea is that it it provides that safe space to have a conversation. You can ask questions that you wouldn't normally ask in in another setting. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So the atheist isn't going to yell at anybody. No, (laughs) no, goodness, no. Um, No, he's 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 his goal, um, from what I understand, is to speak about what his personal experience is being an atheist. So he's not trying to spread atheism or anything like Mm -hmm. that. He's just trying to provide a space to for other people to understand his his perspective. Mm -hmm. Mm hmm. Well, sounds fascinating. So it's mm-hmm. October 1st yes. from 1 to 5 p.m. Mm-hmm. in the Haas Library. Mm-hmm. And anybody's invited? Everybody's invited, Everybody's right? invited. Yes, everybody. Good. And so they should just walk in the library and look for you. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll have, um, it'll be on the first floor. We'll have a, a checkout station where you can come up and pick the book that you would like to read. Mm-hmm. And and then we'll have the books distributed um I think they're going to be mostly on the first floor. We might, if we get enough, we might have to expand onto another floor. But, um, well, we'll show you where you're going. Mm-hmm. Do they get a Dewey Decimal number or something like that? We hadn't thought of that, <laughs> but that's actually a really good idea. Yeah. <laughs> great. Thanks for coming in. It sounds great. I'll be there. Great. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks, Julie. Now we have Joe Loth, the coach of the football team. They're off to a great start and expect further greatness the rest of the season. Joe, how was last week's game? Last week's game was a uh, barn burner, really. It came down to the last play of the game. We won it, you know, with a uh, with a deep throw to Will. Ar- or, I'm sorry, to uh, <laughs> to Will Daniels in the end zone. That was last David year. James. Hmm. Yeah, exactly. That was like three or four years ago. <laughs> but it was, you know, it was a it was a close game all throughout. We didn't play great on offense. We played great on defense. They came down to the last play, and and uh, we had a, we had a good play at the end to win it. That's exciting. Do you want them all to be that exciting? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> but once in a while, it's you know, it's once in a while it's good to win a close game uh, because it, it it takes certain aspects of a program at the end to learn how to win those close games. Mm-hmm. So you really don't mind having a close game early in the season to see kind of what your team's made of. And what do you expect for this coming uh, week? Well, we're going to play a very talented Dean College team. They're a lot like William Patterson. They got really great athletes all over the field. They recruit nationally. They got kids from Texas and Georgia and Florida and Ohio and all over. So you'll see, if you come to the game, you'll see an extremely fast team with athletes, you know, both sides of the ball. What are you going to do against them? 
Well, hopefully we're going to play a lot better on offense. You know, <laughs> we we played probably the worst game on offense since I've been a head coach here at Western mm. Connecticut. But defensively, we probably played the best game, and we, we were really good on special teams. Hmm. So, so the goal this week, obviously, is to shore up some of the issues we had on offense. That's been our whole focus, and then not get fat and happy on defense and, and understand one game doesn't make a season on either side of the ball. But really, it's a, a week that we're as much concerned about ourselves getting better as we are who we're playing. We're worried about them. We, you know, we broke down all the film and have game plans against them both. But we know, especially on the offensive side of the ball, we've got to – you know, shore some things up to continue to uh, win football games this year. Hmm. And uh, how do you think that'll play out the rest of the season? Well, you know, to be honest, as you approach a football season, there's 10 games, not a lot. It's not like baseball with 30 or 40 and basketball with 20 or 30. I mean, we got 10. So because there's a week in between, you really don't worry about anything but the next game. Hmm. So if you start looking ahead and, you know, worrying about, you know, how the season's going to play out, you know, usually you don't have a great season. So mm-hmm. really we're 100% focused on who we're playing this week, uh, focused on getting ourselves better and what we did poorly last week, and then really, you know, analyzing them and, and trying to beat them. And then after that game's over, you, you put it behind you, you forget about it, and you move on. So, so season-wise uh, – 100% honest right now. We're worried about this game and then move on from there. Hmm. So during the season, you have no time off. I, I literally started August 15th. I thought we reported to camp. And the first day I'll, I'll have off will be the second day after our last game in November, <laughs> even the day after the last game. So seven days a week, usually work 85 to 100 hours a week for four straight months. That's dedication. At least you're getting paid millions of dollars, right? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. But that's, but that's football. That's that's yeah. every every it's every coach in America, and and because you only have these ten games, because you're, you know, if you you know, it's it's just the escalation of well, if they're going to work this hard, well, we better outwork them and not get caught doing this or doing that, and and uh, so it's it's the grind mentality of the of football in America is probably the best way of putting it. Mm-hmm. And. Uh, you have the first home game coming up. Does that make a difference to everybody? Well, I think what happens initially is you just get an instant uh, energy burst of your program. I mean, because kids are playing at home, there's something special about playing home football games. And to be 100% honest, playing home football games at Western Connecticut are different than most places because we have a great energy within our crowd, with our band, our cheerleaders, our stadium. There's just like a an energy that that, that comes with our home games that's that's unique to our school at this level we have I, I, i'll tell recruits every time we have the best game day atmosphere of any small college in new england no mm. one's got a better game day atmosphere than us that's great all right we'll be there and uh, congratulations on your first win good luck with this next one and yeah, we'll talk it. to you soon sounds good thanks paul Bye-bye. so chantel couldn't make it today to talk about events so Woo! Yeah, I know. It's a bad thing, but uh, we'll punish her when she shows up again. So instead, we're going to uh, do what Pete has called the interstitial. And Pete made me say that word. That's right. When he mentioned it today, I thought he was talking about that procedure a doctor does during birth to help the baby come out. Oh, my Lord. Yeah, but I looked it up, and that's an episiotomy. Ah. Completely different. <laughs> It's also the first time Pete used a word I didn't know, so thank you for that, Pete. All right. 
Anyway, today's interstitial is a promotion of the WCSU app that everyone should have on their phone. It gives easy access to much of the information you need to know about the university. Things like phone numbers, so you know who to call, calendars, so you know what events are coming up, and access to Blackboard, so you know what homework to turn in. If you don't have it, download the app called MyWCSU from wherever apps are found, and if you do have it, start using it. That is the conclusion of today's intermediate interstitial. Nice. And it's very uh, appropriate today because with the lack of Chantel, there's no one to give us events. That's so right. You'll have to go to the app. You have to go to the app, yes. Yeah. Okay. That works. You'll see a big uptick now in use of the app. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> Thank you, Pete Puccio, who does the engineering on this podcast, and Scott Volpe, who produces it. To our listeners, please subscribe and keep listening every week so you know what's happening here at WCSU. Chantel will be back next week with events. Until then, I'm Paul Steinmetz, and this is the final interstitial of today's WCSU 411.